Chapter Two of In the Arctic Seas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Arctic Seas by Captain F. L. McClintock. Chapter Two. Twenty-third of July. Sailed the day before yesterday for Godhaab. The fog was thick and wind strong and contrary but the current being favourable we found ourselves off the small outstation of Fiskernice when early this morning our fore topmast was carried away. This accident induced me to run in and anchor for the purpose of repairing the damage. After passing within the outer islets, the Moravian settlement of Lichtenfels came in view upon the right hand. It consists of a large sombre-looking wooden house, over which is a belfry, a smaller wooden house, and about a dozen native huts roofed with sods and scarcely distinguishable from the ground they stand on even at a very short distance the land immediately behind is a barrow rocky steep now just sufficiently denuded of snow to look desolate in the extreme a strong tide was setting out of the fjord as we approached and anchored in the rocky little cove of fiskernice here we were not only sheltered from the wind but the steep dark rocks within a ship's length on each side of us reflected a strong heat whilst large mosquitoes lost no time in paying us their annoying visits this remote spot has been visited by the arctic voyagers captain inglefield r n and dr kane u s n and still more recently by prince napoleon dr kane's account of his visit is full and very interesting cod fishing was now in full activity and the few men not so employed had gone up the fjord to hunt reindeer the solitary dwelling-house belongs of course to the chief trader and is a model of cleanliness and order built of wood it exhibits all the resources of the painter's art the exterior is a dull red the window frames are white, floors yellow, wooden partitions and low ceilings pale blue. The lady of the house had resided here for about eight years, and appeared to us to be, and acknowledged she was, heartily tired of the solitude. She gave me coffee and some seeds for cultivation at our winter quarters. These were lettuce, spinach, turnips, caraway and peas, the latter being the common kind used on board ship. Usually they have only produced leaves on this spot, but once the young peas grew large enough for the table. I expressed a wish to see the interior of an Eskimo tent. Peterson pulled aside the thin membrane of some animal which was hung across the doorway and served to exclude the wind but admitted light, for, although past midnight, the sun was up. Some seven or eight individuals lay within, closely packed upon the ground, the heads of old and young, males and females, being just visible above the common covering. Going to bed here only means lying down with your clothes on, upon a reindeer skin, wherever you can find room, and pulling another fur robe over you. Fiskernice appeared to be a sunny little nook, yet all the people we saw there were suffering from colds and coughs, and many deaths had occurred during the spring. The boys brought us handfuls of rough garnets, some of them as large as walnuts, receiving with evident satisfaction biscuits in exchange. By next morning we were able to put to sea, and early on the day following arrived at the large settlement of Godhab. It is in the Gilbert Sound of Davis, and appears in many old charts as Barles River. Almost adjoining Godhaab is the Moravian settlement of New Hernhut. Here it was that Hans Eyerda, the missionary father of Greenland, established himself in 1721, and thus reopened the communication between Europe and Greenland, which had ceased upon the extinction of its early Scandinavian settlements in the 14th century. A few years after Eyerda's successful beginning, the Moravian mission still existing under the name of New Hernhut was established. At present the Moravians support four missions in Greenland. They are not subject to the Danish authorities, but are not permitted in any way to trade. As we were about to enter the harbour, the Danish vessel, the sole object of our visit, came out, so not a moment was lost in sending on board our invalid and our letter-bag, and in landing our coasting pilot. This man had brought us up from Friedrichshab for the very moderate sum of three pounds. 
he was an Eskimo, and, as the brother of poor Hans, Dr. Kane's unhappy dog-driver, was received with favour amongst us, and soon won our esteem by his quiet, obliging disposition, as also by his ability in the discharge of his duty. He was so keen-sighted and so vigilant, it was quite a comfort to have him on board during the foggy weather, for he could recognise, on the instant, every rock or point, even when dimly looming through the mist. We were not long in discovering that his absence was a loss to us. When passing out to the north of the Kukunan Islands, the wind suddenly failed, and at the same time a swell from to seaward reached us. We therefore had considerable difficulty in towing the ship clear of the rocks. For nearly half an hour our position was most critical. July 31st. Anchored at Godhaven, or Liverley, in Disco for a few hours. I presented a letter from the directors of the Royal Greenland Commerce to the inspector of North Greenland, Mr. Ulrich, authorising him to furnish us with any needful supplies. Our only wants were sledge dogs and a native to manage them. We soon obtained ten of the former, but were advised to go into Disco Fjord, where many of the Eskimo were busy in taking and drying salmon trout, and where some would most probably be obtained. I was much pleased with Mr. Ulrich's kind reception of me, and soon found him not only to be agreeable, but well informed. Born in Greenland of Danish parents, he is thoroughly conversant with the language and habits of the Eskimo, and has devoted much of his leisure time in collecting rare specimens of the animal, vegetable and mineral productions of the country. I came away enriched by some fossils from the fossil forest of Atan Eckerdluck, also with specimens of native coal. It was here I met with the late commanders of the whalers Gypsy and Undaunted of Peterhead, which had been crushed by the ice in Melville Bay five or six weeks previously. All the other whalers had returned from the north along the pack edge and passed south of Disco. They said that the ice in Melville Bay was all broken up, and that they thought we should find but little difficulty in this late period in passing through it into the north water. Leaving Godhaven in the afternoon with a native pilot, we found ourselves some ten or twelve miles up Disco Fjord at an early hour next morning. After dispatching the pilot to announce our arrival to his countrymen at their fishing station, seven or eight miles further up, the doctor and I landed upon the north side to explore. The scenery is charming, lofty hills of trap rock with unusually rich slopes for the 70th parallel, descending to the fjord, and strewed with boulders of gneiss and granite. We found a blue campanula holding a conspicuous place amongst the wild flowers. I do not know a more enticing spot in Greenland for a week's shooting, fishing and yachting than Disco Fjord. Hares and ptarmigan may be found along the bases of the hills. Ducks are most abundant upon the field, and delicious salmon trout very plentiful in the rivers. Formerly Disco was famed for the large size and abundance of its reindeer, but for some unexplained reason they now confine themselves to the mainland. At this season the natives of Godhard resort here and enjoy the trout fishery. It is truly their season of harvest. The weather is pleasant, food delicious and abundant, and the labour an agreeable pastime. Some kayaks soon came off to the ship, bringing salmon trout, both fresh and smoked. A young Eskimo named Christian volunteered his services as our dog driver, and was accepted. He is about twenty-three years of age, unmarried and an orphan. The men soon thoroughly washed and cropped him, soap and scissors being novelties to an Eskimo. Then they rigged him in sailor's clothes. He was evidently not at home in them, but was not the less proud of his improved appearance, as reflected in the admiring glances of his countrymen. We now hastened away to the Waigat Strait to complete our coals. When passing Godhaven, the pilot was launched off the deck in his little kayak without stopping the ship. As a kayak is usually about 18 feet long, 8 inches deep, and only 6 or 17 inches wide, it requires great expertness to perform such a feat without the addition of a capsize. 4th of August. Entered the Waigat yesterday morning, slowly steaming through a sea of glass. Its surface was only rippled by the myriads of eider ducks which extended over it for several miles. Most of them were immature in plumage, 
and probably the birds of last year. After running about 24 miles, towards evening we approached a low range of sandstone cliffs on the Disco shore, in which horizontal seams of coal were seen. Here we anchored, and immediately commenced coaling. It was fortunate we did so, for soon it began to blow hard, and ere noon today we were obliged, for the safety of the ship, to leave our exposed anchorage, having however secured eight or nine tons of tolerable coal. Formerly these coal seams were worked for the supply of the neighbouring settlements, but for several years past it has been found more profitable and convenient to send out coals from Denmark, and thus permit the natives to devote their whole time to the seal fishery. The Waigat scenery is unusually grand. The strait varies from three to five leagues in width. On each side are mountains of three thousand feet in height. The disco side, upon which we landed, is composed of trap, sandstone appearing only at the beach, and occasionally rising in cliffs to about a hundred feet. Upon the moss-clad slopes many fragments of quartz and zeolite were met with. The north end of Disco is almost a precipice to its snow-capped summit, which is 4,000 feet high. Fifth, a pleasant fair wind carries us rapidly northward, passing many icebergs. Our rigging is richly garnished with split codfish, which we hoped would dry and keep, but a warm day in Disco fjord, and much rain with a southerly gale in the Waigat, have destroyed it for our own use. It is, however, still valuable as food for our dogs. I am very anxious to complete my stock of these our native auxiliaries, as without them we cannot hope to explore all the lands which it is the object of our voyage to search. We could only obtain ten at Godhavn, and require twenty more. Sixth, by Peterson's intimate knowledge of the coast, we were enabled to run close in to the little settlement of Proven during the night, and obtain a few dogs and dogs' food. This morning we reached the extreme station of Upernivik, the last trace of civilization we shall meet for some time. It is in latitude seventy-two and three-quarters degrees north. Here Peterson resided for twelve of the eighteen years he has spent in Greenland, and his unlooked-for reappearance astonished and delighted the small community, more especially Governor Fleischer and his household, who received us with the most hearty welcome. Seventh. Yesterday, when we hove to off Upernivik, the weather was very bad, and rapidly growing worse. Therefore our stay was limited to a couple of hours. The last letters for home were landed, Fourteen dogs, and a quantity of seal's flesh for them, embarked, and the ship's head was turned seaward. It was then blowing a southerly gale, with overcast murky sky and a heavy sea running. When four miles outside the outer island, breakers were suddenly discovered ahead, only just in time to avoid the ledge of sunken rocks upon which the sea was beating most violently. Many such rocks lie at considerable distances beyond the islands which border this coast, and greatly add to the dangers of its navigation. Being now fairly at sea, and the ship itself under easy sail for the night, I went early to bed in the hope of sleeping. I had been up all the previous night, naturally anxious about the ship threading her way through so many dangers, and certain about being able to complete the number of our sledge-dogs, and much occupied in closing my correspondence, to which there would be an end for at least a year. All this over, the uncertain future loomed ominously before me. The great responsibilities which I had undertaken seemed now, and at once, to fall with all their weight upon me. A mental whirlpool was the consequence, which, backed by the material storm and the howling of the wretched dogs in concert on the deck, together with the tumbling about of everything below, long kept sleep in abeyance. One thought and feeling predominated. It was gratitude, deep and humble, for the success which had hitherto attended us, and some narrow escapes which I must ever regard as providential. Yesterday's gale has given place to calm, foggy weather. An occasional iceberg is seen. The officers amused themselves in trying new guns and shooting seabirds for our dogs. Governor Fleischer told me yesterday that for the last four weeks southerly winds prevailed, and that only a fortnight ago his boat was unable to reach the Loom Cliffs at Cape Shackleton, fifty miles north of Upernivik, in consequence of the ice being pressed in against the land. 
I fear these same winds have closed together the ice which occupies the middle of the Davis Strait, hence called the Middle Ice, so that we shall not be able to penetrate it. However, we are standing out to make the attempt. To the uninitiated, it may be as well to observe that each winter the sea called Baffin's Bay freezes over. In spring this vast body of ice breaks up, and drifting southwards in a mass, called the main pack or the middle ice, obstructs the passage across from east to west. The north passage is made by sailing round the north end of this pack, the middle passage by pushing through it, and the southern passage by passing round its southern extreme. But seasons do occur when none of these routes are practicable. It is very remarkable that southward of Disco northerly winds have prevailed. They greatly impeded our progress up Davis Strait, but we cheered ourselves with the hope that they would effectually clear a path for us across the northern part of Baffin's Bay. 8. Last night we reached the edge of the Middle Ice, about 70 miles to the west of Upanivik, and ran southward along its edge all night. This morning, in thick fog, the ship was caught in its margin of loose ice. The fog soon after cleared off, and we saw the clear sea about two miles to the eastward, whilst all to the west was impenetrable closely packed flow pieces. After steaming out of our predicament, a matter which we could not accomplish under sail, we ran on to the southward until evening, but found the pack edge still composed of light ice very closely pressed together. Having now closely examined it for an extent of forty miles, I was satisfied that we could not force a passage through it across Baffin's Bay, as is frequently done in ordinary seasons. Therefore, taking advantage of a fair wind, we steered to the northward in order to seek an opening in that direction. 12th. We are in Melville Bay, made fast this afternoon to an iceberg, which lies aground in 58 fathoms water, about two miles from Brown's Islands, and between them and the Great Glacier, which here takes the place of the coastline. We have got thus far without any difficulty, sailing along the edge of the middle ice, but here we find it pressing in against Brown's Islands, and covering the whole bay to the northward, quite in the steep face of the glacier. This is evidently the result of long-continued southerly winds but as the ice is very much broken up, we may expect it to move off rapidly before the autumnal northerly winds now due, and these winds invariably remove the previous season's ice. All that we know of Melville Bay navigation in August is derived from the experience of government and private searching expeditions during eight or nine seasons. My own three previous transits across it were made in this month. The whalers either get through in June or July, or give up the attempt as being too late for their fishing. It frequently happens that they get round the south end of the middle ice, between latitudes 66 degrees and 69 degrees north, and up the west coast of Baffin's Bay late in the season. But we have no accounts of these voyages, nor should I be justified, at this late period of the season, in abandoning the prospect before me, in order to attempt a route which, even if successful, would lengthen our voyage to Barrow Strait by 700 or 800 miles. We have already passed what is usually the most difficult and dangerous part of the Melville Bay transit. There is much to excite intense admiration and wonder around us, one cannot at once appreciate the grandeur of this mighty glacier, extending unbroken for forty or fifty miles. Its sea cliffs, about five or six miles from us, appear comparatively low, yet the icebergs detached from it are of the loftiest description. Here on the spot it does not seem incorrect to compare the icebergs to mere chippings off its edge, and the floe ice to the thinnest shavings. The far-off outline of glacier, seen against the eastern sky, has a faint tinge of yellow, it is almost horizontal and of unknown distance and elevation. There is an unusual dearth of birds and seals. Everything around us is painfully still, excepting when an occasional iceberg splits off from the parent glacier. Then we hear a rumbling crash like distant thunder, and the wave occasioned by the launch reaches us in six or seven minutes, and makes the ship roll lazily for a similar period. 
I cannot imagine that within the whole compass of nature's varied aspects there is presented to the human eye a scene so well adapted for promoting deep and serious reflection, for lifting the thoughts from trivial things of everyday life to others of the highest import. The glacier serves to remind one at once of time and eternity, of time since we see portions of it break off to drift and melt away, and of eternity since its downward march is so extremely slow and its augmentations behind so regular that no change in its appearance is perceptible from age to age. If even the untaught savages of luxuriant tropical regions regard the earth merely as a temporary abode, surely all who gaze upon these ice-overwhelmed regions, this wide expanse of terrestrial wreck, must be similarly assured that here we have no abiding place. During daytime the strong glare is very distressing, hence the subdued light of midnight, when the sun just skims along the northern horizon, is much the most agreeable part of the twenty-four hours. The temperature varies between thirty degrees and forty degrees of Fahrenheit. The drift ice of various descriptions about us is constantly in motion under the influence of mysterious surface and undercurrents, according to their relative depths of flotation, which whirl them about in every possible direction. To the southeast are two small islands, almost enveloped in the glacier, and far within it an occasional mountain peak protrudes from beneath. From observing closely the variations in the glacier surface, I think we may safely infer that where it lies unbroken and smooth, the supporting land is level, and where much crevassed, the land beneath is uneven. The crevassed parts are of course impassable, but by following the windings of the smooth surface I think the interior could be reached. Some attempts to cross the glacier in South Greenland have failed, yet by studying its character and attending to this remark I think places might be found where an attempt would succeed. Mr. Peterson tells me that the Eskimo of Upanivik are unable to account for the occasional disappearances and reappearances of immense herds of reindeer, except by assuming that they migrate at intervals to feeding grounds beyond the glacier, the surface of which, he says, is smooth enough in many places for even dog sledges to travel upon. As there is much uninhabited land both to the northward and southward of Upanivik, I do not see the necessity for this supposition. The habits of the Eskimo confine them almost exclusively to the islands and sea coasts. End of chapter 2